0: Good evening, everyone. This is the next-to-last talk for this session on lineage, May 2015. There'll be a a little wrap-up talk tonight, and then actually there'll be another talk tomorrow uh, for our Sunday program that Fuho will give, which will be a PowerPoint multimedia presentation on Mizumi Roshi. And I'll give you a little history of Mizumi Roshi, and then you'll get to see and hear, hear him. In planning this session, Fuho and Hogan and I thought we would give you a sense of how we were trained at the Zen Center in Los Angeles and Hogan's training at the Rochester Zen Center. So the three of us trained at ZCLA, but before that, uh, in his youth, I think, Hogan went to Rochester Zen Center when he was 19. Dropped out of college and went to the Zen Center, as a number of young people have done here. So we thought we'd give you a feeling of what that was like, you know, the the good old days when we had to walk 10 miles to the zendo through knee-deep, <laughs> knee-deep snow and bare feet and Then we waited outside the door for three days and had to threaten to cut off our arm, and then finally the master would let us in. But then we considered, okay, how were we trained? So for example, Hogan's teacher, Kaplaroshi, Roshi, when he was training uh, in Japan with Dayun Hirata Roshi. So so there's Kaplaroshi. Roshi. Uh, who trained mostly with Yasutani Roshi, but before that trained with Diane Harada Roshi, who was Yasutani Roshi's teacher. And then Mizumi Roshi, who trained with Yasutani Roshi, who trained with Dayan Harada Roshi. So even though Hogan's original lineage is separate from mine, they're actually joined together at Yasutani Roshi and Dayan Harada Roshi. So Dayan Harada Roshi would be your Dharma great-grandfather. So Kepler trained originally in Japan with Dayun Hirata Roshi, And during Rohatsu, somebody stood behind him and hit him continuously on the shoulder with the Kiyosaku until his shoulders swelled up to his earlobes. And the monks accused him of putting padding under his robe to avoid the pain of the Kiyosaku. And he had to take off his robe and show them that it was actually swelling and bruising. We thought, "Oh, and Hogan also at Rochesters end Center he used to be ferocious with the kiyosaku. He had a He had a one arm swing, and uh, people have told me when I you know if they don't know that I'm married to him, I' say, "Oh, I'm married to Hogan Bays. They say, "You mean Larry Bays? Larry Bays. He used to take the Kiyosaku, and they would go like this, "Wham, wham!" And he was considered quite ferocious. Uh, December session in Rochester. So those of you who are sitting in front of the windows, you can imagine sitting in front of the windows in Rochester, New York, upstate New York. In winter, they would leave the windows open and the snow would blow in on them while they were sitting because that's how it is in Japan, essentially. In Japan, in winter, you're sitting outside except it's usually not snowing exactly on you, but it could blow in on you. And the monitor in Rochester would go around the room hitting each person four times, and then would just start around again. So it was a continuous round of being hit. Um, As a a result, Hogan has been pretty firm about, uh, he doesn't think we should use the Kiyosaku. We considered, um, well, at ZCLA and at Sogenji, uh, when we trained with the other Harada the current living Harada As soon as the doksan bell ran, everybody just sprinted out of the zendo, knocking people down or getting injured. Actually, one person at Sogenji broke their leg because they were sprinting out of the zendo because only the first maybe 12 people get in, and everybody else sits there in the freezing cold. So they were running, and they were feeling like, ha ha, I'm ahead of so-and-so, turned around to look and laugh, and smashed into a tree and broke their leg. We recall being thrown out of Sanzen and then being thrown right back in by a monk who was standing outside the door with a stick. Uh, or how two monks got in a fight in, at ZCLA in the zendo because one didn't like how the other one hit him. This was right in the middle of the And Roshi uh, excommunicated them out of the zendo, and then they had to come back and do 100 bows and publicly apologize to the sangha. And we recalled how we would bellow moo, actually scream moo at the top of our lungs, hell-bent on enlightenment until we lost our voices completely. And how the monitors would shout, sit still! Or wake up! Or die! Die on the cushion! (laughs) (laughs) It was actually very effective for us, all of that, (laughs) We loved it. We ate it up. It was effective, but we haven't seen it to be effective today, as we've been teaching. Mm -hmm. And we decided, as we have before when we've considered this, should we introduce any of the methods we were trained with, we decided not to bring those ferocious elements from a training that was originally designed for young samurai warriors into our session, because this is a different time and a different culture. In Japan, if the teacher yells at you or hits you, you're actually, in a way, pleased, because it's and it's very encouraging, because it means that you're worth. You have potential, and you're worth hitting or yelling at. In the stories of the old masters, a monk would come and. A new monk would come to the monastery, and the master would question them, where are you from? And the monk would say literally where he was from. And the master, of course, was trying to test the monk's understanding. But the monk was so dense that he would just say, oh, I come from such and such a town in the south. And the master would try again. And then there would would be a dull answer. And then then the master would say in disgust, I spare you 30 blows which is like the worst insult. You're not even worth hitting. However, in this culture, being hit or yelled at invokes an inner critic and makes people upset enough at themselves or at their teachers or at Zen to go away sad or mad or maybe even quit practice. So we decided that we would bring in some elements from our training. The spare simplicity. So we had no instruction in meditation. Posture, none. We were told, cross your legs, sit in the full lotus if possible. Uh, Sit facing the wall. And count your breath to ten. If you lose track, start again. And don't move until the bell rings. And that's what we were taught. That was it. There were no guided meditations. There were no explanations about how practice uh, goes or how Sashen usually progresses. There were no encouraging words during zazen, just a kind of admonitions that I just gave you in a demonstration. So the zendo was silent, except for being the sound of the kiyosaku hitting people and yelling. Most of these elements are from the Rinzai tradition. And the Rinzai tradition was adopted by the samurai class. The Soto tradition, which was Mizumi Roshi's original birthright tradition, uh, was more uh, adopted by the aristocracy because they had time to meditate. Both Kapila Roshi and Maizumi Roshi trained in the Rinzai tradition. They both studied with Yasutani Roshi, as I mentioned, and Yasutani Roshi was an ordained Soto monk. However, Yasutani Roshi felt that the Soto tradition overemphasized the teaching of original enlightenment. The idea that you are, just as you are, a Buddha, or at least a baby Buddha. But usually the teaching is you are a Buddha, the gold underneath the clay. Mm-hmm.
1: And if you just
0: sit with absolutely no gaining notion in your mind, as Shohako Komuras says, zazen is good for nothing. Mm-hmm. He was trained by a famous Soto teacher, Uchiyama Roshi. Zazen is good for nothing. So to hold that, no gaining notion in your mind, if you just sit, you are manifesting your Buddha nature. And it will emerge fully into your experience over time. If we just get out of the way, the 10,000 dharmas will be able to advance in our awareness, become our awareness, and will enlighten us to our original enlightenment, which we are manifesting by sitting zazen. If you're sleepy, then be a sleepy Buddha. If you're distracted, then be a distracted Buddha. Classic Soto Zen teaching. where Roshi felt that something was missing. When the truth fills our body and mind, we realize that something is missing. He read the vivid stories of the sudden awakening of the old masters, like the story that Hogan related of Ko being so desperate that he stood in the, in the snow for three days and nights and eventually cut off his arm in front of Bodhidharma, a story that made Kepler Roshi weep when he told it. And Yasutani Roshi was so inspired, he determined that he would actually experience for himself this enlightenment that was talked about, that he read about, but wasn't, to, in his experience, actualized in soto zen. He wanted to experience for himself his original face, the sound of one hand, mu the reality behind everyday activity and everyday distress, the eternal reality that relieves all suffering. As ECLA, the Heart Sutra, our Heart Sutra said, this is the truth, not a lie. It relieves all suffering. This is the truth, not a lie. So Yasutani Roshi went to study with Dayan Harada Roshi. And remember, this is, uh, at the monastery, which Harada Roshi deliberately founded in the coldest part of Japan, saying that the bitter cold drove people into their hores. And um, I actually experienced this for my for myself at Sogenji. When we uh, did a rohatsu session in December at Sogenji in in Okayama, which is south. That's the that's the mild south compared to where uh Roshi's, um uh, Diane Harotaroshi's temple was. And we were it was so cold that we were that I just didn't I wore all thirteen layers of clothing, everything I had in my suitcase. It was so cold. And then I couldn't cross my legs because I had so many layers of clothing on. <laughs> so I was sort of like like a Michelin man. <laughs> and still it was it was freezing. It was painful. Just your face, because you're not allowed in Rinzai Zen to cover your head or your hands at all. And Hogan actually got frostbite on his ears, frostbite damage on his ears. It was so, so cold that you could not have your awareness anywhere around your skin. It was so painful. So you had to go into your horror, deep in your horror. It was, And I would practice. Uh, Tumo practice, trying to kindle a little flame in my aura so that I could experience a little tiny bit of warmth in all that freezing cold. And I have to say, it drove me into the deepest zazen that I had done until that time. And pain became not pain. Not pain disappearing, but holding, staying with the experience of pain. And having it be sensation, pause, sensation, pause, sensation, pause, sensation, pause. Nothing glued it together as pain. It's so quite amazing. And then, you know, pain came back eventually. But you, once you've experienced pain in that way, you're not afraid of pain again. A little bit of history about Yatsutani Roshi. He was born in 1885 to a very poor family. His mother uh, hoped her son would be a priest, and she was given a bead from a rosary from a mala by a nun who said it would ensure successful childbirth, and she swallowed that bead. And Yatsutani Roshi related that when he was born, that bead was held in his little baby fist. And he knew there was no biological explanation for that, but everyone in the family said it was absolutely true. And he felt that it was part of the mysterious workings of karma, things that are beyond our understanding. When I've told that story, I've also told of my first mother-in-law, who one day felt a bump in her elbow and kind of picked that a little bit and felt a piece of metal, and pulled it out, and it was a long sewing needle. She had no idea how it got there. And the doctor told her she may have stepped on it, and it may have migrated through her body to her elbow, that he had seen things like that happen before. So that makes Tony Roshi's story not quite so fantastic. Hmm? Tony Roshi was ordained at 5, at 5. And often, poor families would do that. If they could not uh, support their children, it was an age before birth control, of course. And uh, a poor family couldn't support children, so they would give a child, usually a son, but it could also be a daughter, to a monastery or a convent. And uh, they knew at least they would be fed, and they would be cared for and trained, educated and trained. So he spent the next seven years at different Rinzai temples until he was 12. And then he traveled and trained for 18 years. He went around to a variety of temples, first Rinzai temples and then eventually Soto temples. At age 30, he married. And he eventually had five children. And there were no temples available for him because at the time, you had to be born into a temple family and then you would inherit your father's temple or maybe your uncle's temple. Uh, if your uh, uncle needed uh, an heir. But there was no temple available for um, Yasutani Roshi, so for 10 years he worked as an elementary school teacher and a principal. But his fervor for enlightenment burned bright, and he continued training under different masters. At age 40, he found Dayun Harada Roshi at Hoshinji, Diane she had also trained with masters in both the Soto and Rinzai lineages. So although in Japan they sometimes portray Soto and Rinzai like Yale and Harvard, and if you stay you studies in, they say, oh, essentially, which school do you belong to? Rinzai or Soto. But actually there's been a lot of crossover and lineage holding by teachers on both sides. So at age 40, he started training with his teacher, Harada Roshi. And two years later, he had Kensho. And then 16 years of further training after that, at age 58, he got dharma transmission. So this is a really good example for us of someone who, we would say, began serious adult training at, at a late age, at age 40. Then he was invited to come to the US, I believe, by Aiken Roshi to come to Hawaii and then came to the US and taught in various places Boston, Pennsylvania, Sachin, and LA. And Mizumi Roshi served as his translator and was so impressed with Yasutani Roshi's clarity that he decided to study with Yasutani Roshi. Mizumi Roshi uh, then did the whole Koan curriculum under Yasutani Roshi, and uh, would go back, even when he began teaching at ZCLA, he would go back to Japan to train, eventually back to train under Osaka Koryo Roshi, who was a Rinzai lay teacher. So first he trained with, actually when he was 15, his father uh, told him to go train, this is Maizumi Roshi, told him to go train with Osaka Koryo Roshi, who was a Rinzai teacher. So again, you see the open movement between sects. Because Yatatani Roshi had also done the uh, koan curriculum, he also taught koans. And Yatatani Roshi was very keen on synthesizing what he thought were the strengths of both Rinzai and Soto practices, so koan. Shikantaza, and emphasis on breakthrough and kensho. So when um, Maizumi Roshi was 15, he had gone to train for a while with Koryu Roshi, who had a dojo, a lay dojo, outside of Tokyo. And actually, my Dharma brother, uh, who lives in San Diego, my Dharma sister's husband, also trained uh, at a young age at that dojo. He happened to be in Japan and undertook training under Koryu Roshi. They weren't there at the same time, though. So uh, Mizumi Roshi began koan study under Koryu Roshi. Then he trained with Yasutani Roshi and did the whole koan curriculum. And then he went back and finished his original koan training with Koryu Roshi. So he did two different systems of koans. Now, that takes that takes dedication, because it's, it's years of training to do the koan curriculum. And then think when you've finished, and you finally go, oh, OK, I finished the koans, all right. And then you decide, well, no, I guess I'll start again. Think how humbling it is to go back and start again. And be rejected for an answer that your other teacher accepted. That would be very distressing. Mm -hmm. Quite possible, because there is no set answer to koans. They're classical answers, but you could read some of them in a book and you could present them and you would be rejected because it's your insight. It's the energy, the energy of awakening that comes through the koan that matters. So Osaka Koryiroshi had been asked by his teacher Jokoroshi to remain a layperson because Jokoroshi was very distressed with the bureaucracy uh, of ordination Jokoroshi was ordained and he just he didn't like the establishment so he asked Koryuroshi to stay as a lay teacher which he did So Mizumi Roshi trained in, under a lay teacher in that lay dojo it was a dojo where lay people would come after work or in their free time or their vacation to do training.
1: So Mizumi Roshi
0: ended up with a strong affinity for lay practice and a, an unusual faith in strong lay practice. And a faith in any person's ability, no matter what their circumstance, married, unmarried, children, women, men, did not matter. He had faith in any person's ability to practice hard and break through. And each of his successors is completely different. So you may know something about Bernie Glassman, who does uh, retreats at um, internment centers, camps where Jewish people were killed, Europe and Germany, does street retreats, and does cloning practice, cloning practice. And then next in line was Genpo. And Genpo was originally a junior Olympic athlete. And so he, he did very athletic sessions actually for a while. Uh, during Tin people would go and work out at the gym. So there'd be a long <laughs> a long break while you go work out in the gym and then come back. And he also did a, a like month-long or three-month-long session, which he didn't recommend after he did that. He said people were pretty crazy after three months of, <laughs> of session. <laughs> but he, he had athletic-type uh, practice. And then Joko, who was... Uh, more psychologically oriented, and had been the, essentially the mother of the chemistry department, where she was the secretary, and ran the, as secretaries often do in academic departments, ran the ran the department from her desk, and uh, so Joko was the next successor, and she had her own her own style, which you can tell if you read some of her wonderful books, and then I was next, and then Dido. Lori. And so Daito and I both ended up founding monasteries, and so on. Each person is very, very, very different, which is wonderful. Maizumi Roshi was, uh, described his style as grandmotherly, self-described grandmotherly. So in the Soto tradition, there are two founding fathers, Dogen Zenji and Kezon Zenji, and Fuho helped you become acquainted with Keizan Zenji. Dogen Zenji is considered the father of Soto Zen, Keizan Zenji, the mother of Soto Zen. And Keizan Zenji was affected very much by his mother, as you heard, and also by his grandmother. And he helped spread Soto Zen out so that it became accessible to everyone. Where Dogen Zenji really concentrated, although he had lay students. He lived in a monastery and concentrated his practice on monastic training. So Maizumi Roshi had uh, his grandmotherly aspects. He was warm. He could be very warm and very funny. Uh, He had a good sense of humor, and he did very amusing impersonations of geisha girls. (laughs) He would prance around and be a geisha. He would also do impersonations of you especially when he'd been drinking, which led to the problem because, um, you know, Japanese are a little hesitant about saying exactly what they think about you except when they're drinking, when it's allowable. So there would be this approach avoidance thing of would you go and drink with him and then risk hearing exactly what he thought about you? (laughs) Or would you not and then wonder what he was thinking about you? So for example, if you were spouting off about something that you thought you knew, he would say, oh, Chosen, you're so intelligent. And you would fall for it. And then he would say, me, I am stupid. I am completely stupid. Sometimes he would say, be stupid. Like a fool, like an idiot in our chant. He was quite mischievous. And one of the reasons I studied with him was this intriguing combination of being very, very serious about the Dharma, but also very amused about the human predicament, including his own. This very amusing predicament of enlightenment manifesting as this imperfect mind and imperfect body. And his body was imperfect. He suffered from chronic back pain. And I used to do acupuncture to help him with that, but really he was in pain, all the time. But you barely knew it; he almost never said anything about it. One one uh, very striking uh, memory is, uh, Roche had come down to San Diego to do a session, and afterward they had a birthday party for him. It happened to be his birthday, and uh, people always eager to please the teacher and win favor with the teacher had brought presents. And one man brought a present that he. it was obvious from the way he handled it and wrapped it that it was something that probably was handmade, very precious. And so um, as the birthday presents were being presented, this man with a great flourish presented this box to Roshi. And Roshi looked at it and looked at him and said, oh, thank you. And then he turned to the person next to him and said, here, you have this and gave it to the person next to him. We were all like, oh my gosh, he actually gave it away without opening it up. But he was completely unattached to the gift, and he was also unattached to the reaction of the giver. It was such an amazing teaching. He would tell me a lot, Chosen, be patient, because Impatience is my life lesson. He would often catch me in some manifestation of impatience and he would say, "Chosen, be patient. And he would also say, be ordinary, be ordinary, not desiring to gain recognition, as our sutra says. A monk asked Master Nansen, what is the way, the Tao, the way? And Master Nansen said, ordinary mind is the way. However, on another occasion, when a different monk asked Master Nansen, what is the way? Or is ordinary mind the way? Maybe he'd heard that Nansen said that. Nansen said, ordinary mind is not the way. So answers are typically tailored to the predicament of the student. It's one of the reasons that we in this tradition do doktan in private. Because what you say to one student could be completely different than what you say to another student. Because it depends on their situation and what they're working with at the time. So Roshis, Mazumi Roshis be ordinary, meant be totally ordinary, go through ordinary, practice like crazy, go through extraordinary, and then go back to ordinary. Our ordinary mind is confused and deluded, but it is the only mind we have to practice with. If the ordinary mind becomes extraordinarily still, extraordinarily open and aware, then it dissolves. And then we are free. But not quite, because our ordinary mind returns and reclaims temporarily lost territory. And it says stupid things like, oh, now I'm so great. I had Kensho. Now I'll go tell everybody about my great insights. That is double delusion. If we can leave the ordinary mind behind. Leave the ordinary mind behind. So just stop for a moment. Let the mind be completely quiet. Turn off thinking and turn on awareness. Pure awareness. If we can leave the ordinary thinking mind behind for some continuous stretches, and we can gradually lengthen those stretches. Stretches of no gap, continuous awareness. If we can do that so often and so thoroughly that the discursive mind becomes optional, completely optional, then the dharma can function through us. When we can empty ourselves out in that way, then the dharma can function through us in most ordinary activities and ways, ordinary ways. That is ordinary mind is the way. Roshi had his ordinariness. He loved to put on jeans and a clean white t-shirt, often with a flannel, plaid flannel shirt over the top, and go out and move rocks around in the garden. He was a small man, but he could easily move big rocks. And he could also move heavy mines. He loved samurai movies, but he was so busy that I only know of once when he went to go see a samurai movie, but he loved it. He smoked one cigarette a day after dinner on the toilet. And I knew him for at least a decade. Before I found that out, I discovered it when I was cleaning his bathroom. And I was his doctor, so I had to ask him about it. Roshi, what is this ashtray doing in your bathroom? But that was his little treat for himself. He also liked Kentucky Fried Chicken. And um there's a very sweet little story about that. So he and his family would order Kentucky fried chicken, you know, a bucket of Kentucky fried chicken. And um we were the the food at Z C L A as here was vegetarian. So many people were vegetarian and somebody came in and was horrified to see Roshi eating chicken <laughs> and said, Roshi, how can you eat that chicken? And Roshi just looked up from the drumstick he was chewing on, and he pointed over to the ledge above the sink in the kitchen and he said, those sprouts, that's where some sprouts, you know, alfalfa sprouts were growing above this high, he said, those sprouts are so alive that I can barely stand to look at them. This chicken has been dead for weeks. And then he kept on eating. <laughs> So he loved to turn your preconceived ideas upside down. Roshi and koans. When Roshi was in the doksan room, he became completely impersonal, ferocious and uncompromising. He demanded clarity. It was like facing a tiger at times. I would sweat sometimes before I went in. It was quite extraordinary. Roshi loved koans. He'd gone through the koan curriculum twice. He loved them as the best way to test one's understanding, to refine one's understanding. And it was very humbling. So koan means public case. Koan. Public ko. Public on case. It's a way to bring your understanding out in public and ask that it be tested. If you purposely ask someone to test your understanding, which the old monks of old used to do, they used to go to another monastery, knock on the door, and ask to be tested or challenge, make a challenge of the current teacher. So if you purposely ask someone to test your understanding, then you are keen on thoroughgoing, complete enlightenment. And vice versa, if you are keen on thoroughgoing, complete enlightenment, then you will ask to have your understanding tested. You can have all the insights you want. If you broadcast your understanding, then it deteriorates into ego fuel. However, if your understanding stays locked inside, it's useless. It has to function. It has to function. So people come all the time with insights. I have insights myself all the time. Haku and Zenji said he had 30 major openings and innumerable insights, minor openings. It doesn't matter unless it functions. It has to function in everyday life. This is why koans, particularly in the beginning, are not answered in words. They are shown. They are demonstrated. Koans force your understanding to emerge into action and thus to enter the realm of your own functioning in your life. But it's not always fun. I would get mad sometimes when Roshi would ring me out. He would laugh. I would would present a koan. He would laugh and then ring me out. And I would go back to the cushion. and I would sulk, like, I know I saw that koan clearly. I am not going to work on this koan anymore. It's hard. <laughs> and then I would calm down, and then I would go back to the koan. And sure enough, go deeper in the koan, something else would emerge. So using that energy, that energy of frustration to dive back in, using that energy for the right purpose, and the koan would open back up again. Because of all the training he'd had with different masters, because of koan training, because of the depth of his understanding, Roshi had a very fluid mind. In some of his Dharma talks, you can't follow where he's going, but actually there's a series from Europe uh, where Uh, on one day he'll start a theme and then drop it and talk about other things, and then the second day he picks up the theme in a different way. And then the third day he picks up themes from the first day, and and suddenly you see it's all there in his mind, all there. And he keeps turning it over and showing it in fresh ways. You could not predict his response or his view. When we would have administrative meetings or board meetings, we would talk on and on and on, and he would just sit back and listen. Then after we wound down, then he would say something very quietly. And it was always a way of seeing things that we had not imagined. So this is an example of his unique interpretation of Go on. So remember, ko- koan means public case. When you read the Shobogenzo or other writings of Dogen Zenji, you can apply this principle. And basically, that's what I'm telling you. See, you shouldn't see things in a dualistic way. In other words, All of Dogen Zenji's works should be appreciated as the Genjo Koan, which we're chanting at noon, the koan of everyday life. Your everyday life is a koan. The koan, which is the absolute universal truth, which is your life. So what is it? What is koan? Koan is supposed to be universal supposed to be a real public issue which has authority for everyone equal equally that's the koan the koan can't be personalized if you personalize it it's not koan anymore that's why it needs to be taken as a whole whatever we call it absolute non-dual transcendent transcending or going beyond what going beyond the bondage of this i i my me, my idea, my understanding, my belief, which is a personal thing. We call that shan, my, something. It's not koan. It's not public. It's not universal. What is the quality of koan that makes it public, universal? No self, no I. Isn't it clear? I'm not saying it's easy to put yourself aside, but at least it's clear. The koan can't be adjusted by personal bias. If you do that, it's no longer a public document. This is a very important point for those working on koans. If you try to do it with your own something, with artificial devices, you are going the wrong way. And regardless how much effort you put in, You build up something that is not quite right. It may even become harmful. So when you work on koan, the important thing is no I, my, me. How can you do that? Throw yourself into the koan. Be the koan yourself. So when we work on muji, become mu yourself. Either way, it's okay. Give yourself altogether away to mu, or let mu occupy yourself completely. Nothing but mu. Give up yourself and let muji take care of it. In that way, you can transcend the dichotomy. So let me talk a bit about what koan is. This is the next day. Ko means to make unevenness even. Ko stands for the absolute part, to make this uneven existence this world of differences equal. So how is that possible? We see a beautiful mountain and hills and a beautiful valley. How can you make this unevenness even? Mountains are high and valleys are low. Some trees are taller than others. How can you make them even? You don't need to. They are what they are and in that are equal. That evenness, see, that is co. Phenomena appear to be different, but they are both different and equal. Mountains are high and valleys are low, so to make them even, we don't need to fill up the valleys and flatten the mountains. There is sameness involved in the differences. On means be as it is. Mountain is high as it is. Valley is low as it is. That's on. An. Man and woman as they are, young and old as they are, and being smart or dull or strong and weak, pretty, ugly, however, just be as is. In other words, this koan is a very interesting thing, see? Ko stands for the absolute side, and yet it contains the relative. On stands for the world of appearances, everything as it is, everybody as is, all different, and yet it has the absolute as a background. Koan is a synonym for your life. We study life. We penetrate life, using all the case koans as a mirror and without self. Reflect upon our life and see the sameness and the differences. When you do that, definitely, the koan will enlighten you. That's what it means. To forget the self is to be enlightened by the 10,000 dharmas. Anything. Everything. That's what 10,000 dharmas are. That is to say, when you really forget yourself by anything, by everything, you will be enlightened. In other words, your life becomes the life of everything. So he interprets "co." public, as the absolute, and on as relative, the case the individual case, as a relative. And koan work brings these two together as one, the absolute and the relative, as they are in your very life. Shikantaza. Mizumi Roshi also taught and did himself shikantaza. He told us that Yasutani Roshi said, if you do shikantaza right, In 30 minutes, you'll be sweating. Shikantaza is every sense completely open. So close your eyes and be aware of every sound, no matter how minute. Most of you know about the nada sound. So include the obvious sounds, the subtle sounds, and the nada sound. Now, open your awareness to touch, to the millions of tiny touches on the body and in the body, not letting go of full awareness of sound. Can you make your mind that big? Can you make your awareness that fast, that complete? And then you add in sight. So even with your eyes closed, there is sight. Completely aware of all sound, all touches, all sight. You see how difficult that is to do. In 30 minutes, you work up a sweat. So here's what Maizumi Roshi said on one occasion about shikantaza. Shikantaza means to just sit, isn't it? That's what we should do. If I can't, that's my problem. When you really do it, then right away something happens. But if we don't, nothing happens. Shikantaza is just shikantaza. But we always add something extra. And then it becomes something else. It seems to me the key is this shikan. Just, or wholeheartedly, just sit, literally, just sit. That's the hardest part of shikantaza, simplest thing and maybe the hardest thing. Shikan is the most intimate way to exist. That's what it really means. It doesn't matter what you are doing. Shikan working, shikan sleeping, shikan being sick. Whatever you do, if you do it wholeheartedly, it is perfect. So just try to do it, literally. Just sit. And not only physically, let your mental activities sit too. Simple as that. It sounds easy, but I guarantee it is hard. Like myself, I can't do it. But it is a challenge, see, to just really do it. No questions are necessary. The answer is always there. Your question and answer all together, it's self-contained. The answer is just to be with yourself. So the thing is, to really do that, then it happens. That's what Dogen is trying to emphasize, Shikantaza, as the best way to appreciate enlightened life. It's an extremely simple formula, and it's the hardest thing to do. Because when you think about it right there, there's a big gap. Being shikantaza and thinking about something else, literally, there is a heaven and earth difference. That's where the trouble starts. Don't expect anything. We don't need to. There is nothing to gain. What we want is right here. Shikantaza is self-fulfilled samadhi. It's samadhi, see, not thinking. Zenji never said that sitting by itself is enough to realize what life is. Straight sitting and penetrating Zen is the right gate. That's what he says in the Bendoa. Sitting is then almost like a means, a scheme, by which we get into the house. Maybe there's a side gate or a back entrance, but Zazen is the front gate. He doesn't say Zazen is everything inside the house. In order to do shikantaza, it is crucial to have faith. Faith in the fact that shikantaza works. Of course, you have to have faith in yourself too. And the fact that you can attain realization. But what I want to emphasize here is to simply have faith in shikantaza. It is the best way to practice. And when you really do it, practice becomes realization itself. And realization is nothing other than practice. Here's another example of how Roshi looked into ordinary teachings. So we're taught from the um, classic teachings uh, about the Dharma seals, the three Dharma seals. So these are ways that you can check is a teaching, a Buddhist teaching. So there are many teachings that come from Buddhism in many cultures, Thai Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism, Korean Buddhism, (laughs) Vietnamese Buddhism, Western Buddhism. But the way that you can check among these varied teachings, is this really a teaching which lines up with the Buddhist teachings, is these three seals. Seals meaning not barking seals, but seals. So the first seal is impermanence. Is it a teaching about the truth of impermanence? The second is suffering. Is it a teaching about the universality of distress and suffering in human life? And third is a teaching about no self. Is there a teaching about no self? So he took those three seals and he compared them to the fourth seal could be said to be liberation. And he compared those classic three or four seals to the Enmei Juku kanon So we chant the Enmei Juku kanon gyo but we actually don't chant the literal English translation. Roshi once gave us a teaching on the Enmei Juku Kanonkyo in some I have his handwritten a teaching on it. The kanji for Enmei kanon-gyo, and then the literal translation of each syllable. So it starts with Kanzeon, so that's Kanon Bodhisattva, invoking Kanzeon. Namu Namu-ubutsu-yo literally means being one with the Buddha, or homage to the Buddha. But Roshi liked to translate it being one with the Buddha. Kanzeon, being one with the Buddha, butsu uenyo, butsu uenyo. So butsu En, butsu En, the one is I n one is En, means directly Buddha, indirectly Buddha. So that's the whole of the teaching right there. We are directly Buddha, the teaching of the Mahayana. We are Buddha nature. Buddha nature appears as us in our very life we are already Buddha nature. And yet, indirectly, we have to discover that by indirectly. Indirect means by doing shakantaza, by doing koan study, by sitting in sashin. All these artificial means to uncover our direct Buddha nature, to experience it directly. So Kanzeon, being one with the Buddha, directly Buddha, indirectly Buddha. Bu so, Buddha, dharma, sangha. N. N is being, or true nature. And then this is, wh- this is where Roshi took the three, the three or four seals and compared them to what the enmejuku kanongyo says. So jo rakuga jo. Jo means eternal. Hmm? We have impermanence as a Buddha seal, as one of the three seals. We have Jo, eternal. Raku means joyous. We have the second seal, suffering. Nianmejuku, joyous. Ga means without self, selfless. The third seal is... The self, the problem of the self, the no self. And Jo, the last, pure. So the sutra says, our true nature is joyful, pure, eternal. And then Chonen, Kanzeon, means morning mind, literally, nen. Nen is a mind moment. So it means as you wake up in the morning, the first thing in your mind, compassion. Morning mind, kanzayon. Morning mind, compassion. Bonen kanzeon. kanzayon, bo nen. Bo means evening mind, kanzayon, the evening moment, before you fall asleep, compassion. Nen nen is moment, mind moment after mind moment, the tiniest mind moment, where we're working in our deep zazen. Jushin ki nen nen. There is nothing separate from this. Moment after moment, there is nothing separate from this. So jo, rakuga jo, eternal, everlasting, permanent, comfort, enjoyment, happiness. Mine, where said it means mine, ga means it is mine. There is no self, but it is mine. And lastly, jo, pure and genuine to let the self go and realize the joy, the happiness, the comfort, the essential purity, and the eternal nature of your own life. In the book on vows, I use Mizumi Roshi as an example of a vow and the power of a vow. It looks like they're going to call the book uh, The Vow-Powered Life. (laughs) (laughs) Not the title I would choose, but they're the marketing people. They get to choose the titles. The Vow-Powered Life. Roshi had a vow-powered life. At age 26, he left Japan on a steamship with a one-way ticket and just a few hundred dollars in spending money. He also carried a vow, which he told us about many times. His vow was to plant the seeds of Dharma so firmly in Western soil that it could not die out. From the outside, his vow seemed impossible. He didn't speak English, and he had no means of support beyond the small stipend that was paid by a Japanese-American temple, where he served as a priest in, in uh, LA. So imagine yourself. You decide you're going to go to a country you've never been to before, where you don't speak the language, and you're going to change people's minds. You have no money, you have a one-way ticket. By day, he served at the temple and also worked as a gardener in his free time to earn some money. By night, he took English classes at a community college, and he actually learned to speak English uh, well in the sense of he had a, a very large vocabulary, and he loved words, loved playing with words. I would help him translate the the, the Shobo Genzo translate Dogenzenji, and we would, we would, in an hour we would get about three words translated because he said Dogenzenji is so difficult to translate because Dogenzenji has a unique way of using Japanese language. Plus, he would, he would ask me the translation of a word, and he would ask me for all the synonyms of that word. We didn't have computers in those days, so you couldn't like open your computer and look up synonyms. So I would have to think of all the synonyms for one word. And then I would have to explain all of those synonyms, like the nuances among the s- the synonyms in English usage. And then so he could pick the one he felt worked the best for what Dogen Zenji was trying to say. But his English was um, not perfect in its expression. Uh, so you had to listen very closely, which actually was an advantage. He spoke quite slowly, usually. Um, because he was translating into English, uh, in his own mind, and um, it was very, very interesting. You had to listen very closely. Once he gave a whole show on the rhinosaurus horn fin, and not we did not understand what he was talking about. He kept talking about the rhinosaurus horn fin, <laughs> and at the end we suddenly realized, oh, it's the colon about the rhinoceros horn fin. <laughs> Or once he talked about the birds, the birds barking and the dogs chirping. (laughs) Birds barking and the dogs chirping. (laughs) So you would you would have to listen very carefully, which is actually good. Um, Well, years later, I took a class in rapid Spanish and in Portland, at PCC and PSU, and you had to speak right away they forced you to speak right away with each other have conversations and because we our vocabulary was so small you would you would say things like today the sky is blue <laughs> another person would say yes <laughs> today the sky is very blue <laughs> And I, I, took, I was taking this class and speaking like that. And I thought, wait a minute, that's how Roshi spoke. <laughs> it makes things sound very profound. <laughs> if you've ever seen the movie *Being There* with Peter Sellers, just like that, just like that. So in the movie, Peter Sellers is a gardener, whom people discover, and through a very series of misunderstandings, they think he's. Extremely bright, actually enlightened. Because they they say, "Well, tell us about what what's going to happen to the economy this spring." And he says, "In the spring, the trees grow green." And they go, "Oh, he means the economy is going to improve." And so then, <laughs> <laughs> then they change government policy because of what he said. And he's really not very bright, but. He's ordinary, very ordinary. So we had to listen very carefully. And that when you listen very carefully, you actually have a chance to go deep into the meaning of something very simple. So we took English classes at a community college, and he sat zazen. And gradually, a group of Western students came to sit with him.
1: And eventually it grew into
0: a community that, after a few more years, bought a small house. So our original zendo was a dental office. And the the doksan room was where the dental chair used to be, <laughs> which we thought was <laughs> nicely ironic <laughs> to go in and have not your teeth pulled, but your um, ego pulled. So then gradually, more houses were bought. And as a result of Mizumi Roshi's original vow, the Zen Center of Los Angeles took shape. And it grew into a complex of houses and apartment buildings that occupied almost an entire city block, housing 75 residents and a community clinic that was one of the first in the country to integrate Western and Eastern healing methods. And an academic institution that sponsored conferences and publications by Buddhist scholars and still exists today and is still publishing today. Out of that busy center came a lineage that includes more than 100 authorized Zen teachers, serving thousands of students in over 60 Zen centers around the world, all from what might have seemed a foolish vow taken on with great sincerity by a determined young man. Maizumi Roshi always said, appreciate your life. Appreciate your life. He meant both your individual, unique life and your great life, the great life, both the small, temporary, confined, ordinary you and the vast, eternal, unbounded, joyful, extraordinary wonderful life that is you being lived through you. I know that if he could or does see this monastery, sees everyone sitting here so earnestly, he would be very pleased. We are. Shakyamuni Buddha, the original enlightened one. We are Mahakashapa the disciplined. We are Bada, the actualizer of past life vows. We are Ananda of the quick mind, but slow to actually awaken. We are Bodhidharma, the radiant, silent sitter. We are those most determined and persecuted Chinese nuns we are Maizumi descendants. We are his living vow. We are the way the wheel of this precious teaching turns. And as we free ourselves, so also do we free others. Please be patient. Be diligent. Be ordinary. Be stupid, and be extraordinarily wise. Ordinary and stupid again. Be stupid, be wise, and be stupid again. Appreciate your life as the very life of all that is. Over and over, nen, nen, ju, shin, never, Let it go and wake up!